welcome to Coffee with the Snows, where we talk about everything from the Bible to current events, but always flavored with high-octane caffeine and biblical thought. I'm your host, Art Snow, along with my co-host and beautiful wife, Sharon Stone. Now, we begin every broadcast with, the, with us describing our coffee mug of the day, because every coffee mug in our collection has a story. Our coffee mug today is white with a blue interior, and it says snow much fun on it. Snow much fun. Well, the story behind this mug is that this last Christmas, we had all of our girls home for Christmas. We spent six days together, had an epic event, all six, all seven of us together, and I, we bought each one of the girls and ourselves this snow much uh, fun mug, and we drank our hot chocolate and coffee out of it for six days and just simply had a blast. So that's the coffee mug for today. Well, here we are. Last podcast, Sharon and I talked about five mistakes we made in ministry. Looking back over 40 years, the five most major things that we did wrong. And hopefully you've learned something from them after hearing them. Maybe you don't have to repeat that same mistake, you know, make your own, I guess. So this podcast we're going to do something different. We're going to do flip the script. We're going to talk about five things we did right. So Sharon, do you want to start introducing those five for us? I will. The first one is traumatic stress. And we sort of ended the last podcast with that because we talked about the situation that we were in and how we had handled it differently. And those were mistakes that we made, although we averted tragedy out, out of the, the mistakes that we made. But once we had that, that Valentine's Day meeting, which we talked about in the last podcast, once we had that meeting, we began to do things right in traumatic stress. And we began to set a pattern. And one of the things we did was uh, what I would call extreme vulnerability. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Extreme vulnerability means I tell you what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling, even when it's incredibly personal mm -hmm. and embarrassing. Because I remember Francis Frangipan saying that Satan dines on everything we withhold from God. And if I withhold something from you, not, not that you're God, but I think the principle uh, stands true, that if I withhold something for you, from you, it is a little space where the enemy can get between us and so uh, the thing that we did right with extreme vulnerability was that we both agreed to uh, immediately enter into any conversation that involved extreme vulnerability with acceptance, love, and just you know unconditional positive response, no matter what the other person said. That's good. One of the things we often say to each other is, um, this may not come out right, but let me just get the words out there and we can fix it afterwards. And I think that phrase helped us along the way uh, with just sharing our feelings. And sometimes they're hard feelings to share, they're emotional. So, but getting the words on the table is the most important thing. You may have to rearrange the words afterwards or maybe take a couple words out or maybe add a word or two, but at least you've done your heart, you've expressed your heart. Right. I think that. You know, oftentimes in, in extreme situations or in, in intense situations, um, there, are, there are emotions that we have and we don't even know the right word to choose. But a word comes to us and it's not perfect, mm -hmm. 
but we say it. And when we just put it in the air with no qualifier, the, the person hearing it has a response to that word. And by, by just saying, I'm not going to say this right and I don't think I'm choosing the right word, it does two things. It allows the other person, you know, not to be defensive. When you say that to me, I'm immediately, oh, okay, he doesn't mean this. This is obviously something that's going to hurt me, but he doesn't mean it that way. And so I'm immediately not on the defensive. And then it also gives the person who is saying the word an opportunity to uh, hear themselves express an emotion and then rethink, you know what? No, that's not really what I, that really isn't what I'm feeling. It's more like this. Yeah, hearing the word is kind of stark sometimes and helps you to rethink it. Uh, one of the things that's sometimes I think harder for men than women is being vulnerable. Uh, men tend not to be nearly as vulnerable as women. So I think over our lifetime together in our marriage, uh, 40 plus years, it's, we've learned, I've learned to become more vulnerable with you and be transparent. And that's often very difficult for men to do. Right. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that we did right uh, you know, after we did some things wrong in this uh, traumatically stressful situation is we began to adjust our own, our own way of processing. So I adjusted by being willing to not talk about it at the moment, but, but remembering to bring it up later, not allowing you to your default of never wanting to talk about it. And I think you would probably say that you changed by talking about it and not jumping back in that river of denial and hoping that I would swim the other direction and so forget true. you were even in the same river with me. So true. Uh, I, have to, I have to say that the story we told at the end of the last podcast was a very, I asked you to tell it because it's painful to talk about. So we've, I don't think we've ever faced that traumatic of a valley since then. But if we ever had to, the lessons we learned in that valley served us a lifetime. Absolutely. And I think that if we look back on that season of our life, there were some minor, minor traumatic stressors that happened to us leading up to that. And even during that, there were some stressors with other areas of our life. And um, it, it, was a, it was kind of like a, a, a conglomerate or a confluence of a number of situations that all came together to create an incredibly traumatic, stressful situation for us. And I believe that for me anyway, um, I think I had lived, uh, not that we never had any issues, but I'd lived a relatively um, storybook life with you. You know, we didn't really have conflict. I mean, we had conflict, but nothing that we couldn't resolve. And we'd never really had any marital issues. Uh, we'd, we'd never really had anything go wrong with us. But that time and that season created this confluence of, of experiences and of situations and circumstances that created great turmoil. And uh, we could have chosen very badly, and we might be not be doing coffee with the snows. <laughs> we so could true. have been doing coffee with Sharon from prison, or <laughs> coffee with Art from his second wife. You know, it's, it, it, things could have turned out very differently. But God had a plan for us, and and He allowed us in that situation. Um, obviously, because He's a good Father, He knew ultimately how we would choose. 
and he used that to help form us into the the uh, willingly vulnerable vessels that we are today. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Say that again. We are willingly vulnerable vessels. Yeah, that's it. All right, it's number one. Uh, the second thing we've done right along the way in 40 years of ministry is family. Uh, we have raised five daughters and love each of them, and they love us, and we've done family really well. It's interesting, I have a friend who went to Bible college a little later in life. He's probably in his 30s, I'd imagine. And he would oftentimes have the young folks over to his house, the young students, particularly those who came from pastor's homes. And he would always ask them three questions. Growing up in a pastor's home, what did you, what did you love about it? What did you hate about it? And what would you change about your father? Interesting questions. So I heard that, he told me that, and I thought, that's really cool. So I talked to my oldest daughter, Emily, at the time, she was actually living away in another place, and I said, hey, these are three questions that Mitch told me about. How would you answer those? And she, answered, she said the first thing, uh, what she loved most about living in a pastor's home was the privilege she had. The fact that we traveled, we, she got a chance to do things that her peers did not know how to do, like work, you know, copy machines and things like that. And the thing she hated about growing up at a pastor's home was she felt like she lived in a, in a glass bowl, like a fishbowl, you know, and everyone watched her life all the time. And she said, what I would change about my dad? Nothing. <laughs> it made me cry. <laughs> I can still cry talking, telling the story. I still cry about it um, because we were good parents along the way, you know? Yes, I, I think that... Um... When we first got married, uh, we knew early on that I was I was for sure going to have difficulty conceiving, and then later it, we discovered that it was a double infertility problem, and so we um, knew that we were not going to probably not going to have biological children, and I had no objection to ab adopting, uh, neither did Art, and so we entered the process of adopting, which was very long and tumultuous, and that's not part of the story or this podcast, but uh, eventually we adopted our first daughter, Emily. We got her when she was 24 hours old. And uh, Art fell in love and we picked her up and he got in the car, looked over at me and said, let's have six. And I said, oh, okay, let's just do <laughs> What was one. I thinking? Let's, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> let's just do one for now. But uh, we, we really appreciated the role of parenthood because we did not think it would be an experience that we were going that we would have the privilege of uh, having. So so we entered parenthood with with great expectation and great joy. And uh, Emily was a great child. Uh, she was a, a good baby, she was a good toddler. And so uh, it was a gr it was a great experience having an only child. It's not what we wanted, but it but we were told that we should not ask for any more. And then when Emily was about 14, we got an opportunity to adopt uh, Danielle. We got Danielle when she was just 18 hours old. And uh, Danielle was a great child. Danielle loved uh, family. She hated when Emily went to school, even as a baby. She would crawl out to the foyer and sit and wait at the door uh, at 3.15 until Emily came in the door. And then she would smile and and be relaxed for the rest of the evening once we were all home together. And then uh, we, we really enjoyed the two children together. We had a, a great relationship. It was almost like raising 
two only children right. because there was the a age right the age difference was uh, was there and but we took our children everywhere with us. Uh, Emily accompanied us to conferences and pastors Israel. meeting to Israel yeah. to Central America. Danielle took her first uh, attended her first Foursquare convention when she was just two weeks old and. When she was six weeks old, she accompanied me to the United Nations Conference in Istanbul, Turkey, and and we just we never left our kids. We always made them a part of everything we were doing. It was never we have ministry and we have children. It was we have family, and they were right. always a part of that. And uh, they learned they learned that we were always their priority, even though we were busy, which meant that if we were in a meeting, they knew they could walk in. At any moment, they could call and we would answer because they were our priority. Even today, if we're in a, in a conference or in a meeting with somebody, we want to make kids calls, I say, excuse me, it's my daughter. Right, because I think that's, that's something that we did to instill in them our unconditional love, our protection of, and our care for them, and to, to physically or visibly show them that they were our priority. And then, of course, um, we, we shared a little bit of the story of me becoming pregnant with our biological child, uh, our youngest child. And uh, she was born, uh, and she's 16 at the, at the, the you right know, now. yeah, right now, the production of this podcast. And uh, our other two daughters, uh, the first one came about two years after Kate was born, and she entered our family as an eight-year-old. And uh, then our fifth daughter is actually our granddaughter. That's right. <laughs> which uh, uh, Emily, our oldest daughter, has a daughter. And uh, we, she was kind of like the uh, sister niece. <laughs> right. The daughter-granddaughter. Uh, because we were so committed to Emily that we were committed to helping Emily raise her daughter. And that's the, the other thing that I think we did right in family. Yes. because. When Emily uh, became pregnant, her freshman year of college, uh, we talked to a lot of pastors who shared stories of kicking their uh, daughters out of their home. Yeah, so sad. And I never could understand that. I, I remember always being shocked because I thought if Jesus forgives mm -hmm. us, why wouldn't we forgive our, our own child? Right. You know, why wouldn't we why would we do that? Why would we alienate our old child because she made a wrong choice or, or a, a difficult choice? And so um, our granddaughter has been a part of our family and we do consider her a daughter even though she fully understands uh, that she's our granddaughter. But we treated her exactly the same as we treated everyone else. And, uh, you know, five girls in a family, that's a lot of fighting. That's why I have all the gray hair I have. Exactly uh, right. It's a lot of estrogen. <laughs> and so uh, it hasn't always been uh, smooth, and I, w I wouldn't necessarily call it a storybook, but it's been an, an amazing love story of blending five young woman, women into an amazing family who love God, who serve God, and I know will go on to have depth of relationship and depth of purpose together for all, all the days of their life. I remember one day having a particularly difficult day uh, with our kids, and they were, I don't know, fighting or something. And I was praying about that. And remember this, Sharon? The Lord said to me, I trust you with those children. <laughs> right. And we said, Lord, please don't trust us so much. 
as a word for the Lord, I trust you with those girls. So uh, it, it's, it's part of our mission in life. So family is number two, and we love that. What's number three, Sharon? Number three is is we did good as a couple. Ah, we have. That that's one thing that we we do right. We are a an amazing couple. We love each other. We have navigated multitudes of conflict over gifting, over uh, Art and I are a cross-cultural marriage. Uh, and so we, we navigated our cultures. We navigated uh, lots of things that could have separated us. But together we realized that we did not choose each other, but God chose us for each other. And art completes me. I would not be the woman that I am today without him. We have uh, spent, spent a lot of time together. We have uh, work in the same office together. So we're together all day long. And then we love coming home and being together at home. We, are, we fight for time together. We, we love being together all the time. Let's talk about our date nights because that's really important to us, right? So we have date nights every week. Sometimes a couple times a week we go. We have a favorite restaurant that we go to. Uh, my kids hate the place, but we drag in there anyhow. But it's important for us to spend time. And what we found is, even statistically what you find, is that most divorces happen when the kids move out of the house. And the reason for that is because they've poured their entire lives into their children, and they've not spent time building into each other's lives. So when the kids are gone, they've got nothing left at all except you know, each other, and they don't even, sometimes don't even like that. Um, so we believe it's really important just to build each other's lives. So we love spending time together, love going on dates together, love just driving and talking in the car together. Absolutely. And our, our children, uh, you know, we always get grief from them when we kiss in the kitchen. Oh, they say, get a room. Yeah, get a room or, oh, we don't want to see that. But secretly, I think they do want to see that. Secretly, I think they're really proud of their parents for openly demonstrating the love we have for each other. And perhaps they don't fully appreciate it because they might hear stories of their friends' parents who are not together, but they've never really lived in a home where there was violence or fighting. And so they don't, they can't fully appreciate how much we love each other and the space that we create for them. But they know it's date night. You know, if they see us going out, they roll their eyes. Oh, yeah, date night. But I think right. that ultimately each one of them will choose a mate that treats them the way you treat me. I, I think that's yeah, what will that's happen. True. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talk oftentimes about intimacy. In a couple's lives, there's intimacy. And there's three kinds of intimacy. There's physical intimacy. There's emotional intimacy. And there's spiritual intimacy. So we have spent a lifetime really developing all three of those. And I always tell guys in particular, when they always want the physical part of the intimacy, uh, it's kind of what drives a lot of guys. And I always say, you can't have that unless you have emotional intimacy with your wife. And you can't have emotional intimacy with your wife unless you have spiritual intimacy with your wife. Right. I, I think some of my favorite times with you as a couple is in our little prayer corner. We have a yeah. portion of one room in our house where there are just two small wingback chairs and uh, our com we have communion there, our Bibles are there. There's a, a small little water, kind of a waterfall fountain kind of a thing. And there's an Alexa so we can have uh, Bethel music playing. And uh, it's just our space to meet God. And it's, it's great to meet God alone, 
but it's a whole nother level to meet God with your spouse. And I, I love those times together. I, I genuinely do. And I think we've modeled that really well to every church we've ever pastored. I know on our first anniversary at the church we're currently pastoring, uh, someone had found out our favorite song. And so they, they played our favorite song, which is Unchained Melody, and spontaneously by the Righteous Brothers, the Righteous Brothers <laughs> and spontaneously uh, you just came off the platform and we started to dance, you know, like in the in the front of the sanctuary. And I remember the whole the whole place just started clapping and shouting. And it, it was such a good experience because I think we cannot model that. And where should children learn how to have coupleness? Where should children learn that or young people learn that? but from their pastors and in the church uh, because God has a plan for that and God is pleased with that. He made couples. I, I firmly believe that I am your rib. You know, I firmly believe that, that God made me for you and God made you for me. And why wouldn't we celebrate that um, as part of his amazing creation? I think there's also something about being, uh, we are physical with one another in public. We hug, we kiss, we hold hands. There's something about, I think, leaders, right? Pastors and leaders, church leaders, showing love to their spouse publicly. Because I think that sends a message to everyone that says that um, you need to love your spouse deeper and deeper every day. I think it also is a protective factor because yeah, exactly right. if, if I am visibly seen loving you and you are visibly seen loving me, then it doesn't allow the enemy to bring mm -hmm. someone in, either a male or female, that would seek to, you know, draw our attentions away from one another. And so I think that's not why we do it. We do it because we love each other. But I think an added benefit of being physically, publicly physical with your spouse in an appropriate way, of course, is a protection factor uh, from just an, an onslaught of the enemy. Yeah, two, I think two things before we leave this subject I want to say is, number one, um, you, you need to learn to fight well as a couple. As long as you're a couple, you're going to have conflict, right? So over the years, we've developed really good communication skills and really good fighting skills. And if you fight well, you live well. That's, that's absolutely uh, true. I, I'll, I'll share your favorite expression. <laughs> I, I'd, I rather, really <laughs> I'd, I'd rather fight with you than make love to anyone else. And I think, I think that's true because a marriage without conflict is, is a, a myth. You know, there's, yeah. just, there's no such thing as a marriage without conflict. And so it's not if or when, it's how the conflict gets resolved. And the, the, in the resolving of the conflict is a growing strength of relationship. And the, the strength of relationship is our prize. It's, it's our jewel that we give to each other and we give to those, our children and anyone else who's watching us is the strength of our relationship. And uh, if I can't fight well with you, then I can't really love well with you. Yeah. Um, I think that a number of years ago, I wrote you a poem called Old Love. And in that poem, I compared old love to the a vintage of wine. And I, many stanzas in the poem, but it had everything to do with good wine is aged wine. And good love is aged love. Absolutely. Because young love is, love young is wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> love, young love that. is, yeah, I do remember <laughs> that too. 
young love is so wonderful, but there's a depth of aged love that grows through the resolution of conflict and the walking through tragedy and uh, just comforting one another in times of dire stress. And it just brings a sweetness and a an aroma that is pleasant and I think pleasing to the Father. Ah, I believe you're right, absolutely. We've talked about traumatic stress, we've talked about family, we've talked about a couple. Now what's our fourth one we're gonna talk about? Our fourth one is obedience. And I, I love the fact that we have done obedience very, very well. I think a good example of that is um, this is our fifth church in our life, serving God together in five different pastorates. And every time God opened the door, no matter where it was, we said yes. We always say yes to God, no matter what he says, asks us to do. If it's adopting children, yes. If it's moving from Maryland to New Jersey, it's yes. If it's moving from Ohio to Maryland, it's yes. So we never even questioned that. If the Lord says something to us, we obediently follow because obedience is a, is a strength of any believer's life. If you're not obedient, you can never mature. You can never grow. I think it, it also speaks of the level of trust that we have in God's ability to orchestrate our life. I, I know a lot of people who plan, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to plan, and it's not that we haven't planned on occasion, but I think there is a restfulness in allowing God to carry you. Um, a, an example that I just used on Sunday because the Lord gave me kind of a vision uh, during our church service on Sunday, but like a piece of driftwood mm -hmm. on the ocean. The driftwood has no ability to direct its own course, but it is carried by the whim of the, the ocean's waves and currents. And I want to be carried along by the whim of the Holy Spirit. I want to be carried along by God's purpose and direction for my life. And I don't want to do anything to, to overt his directing of my life. I don't want to have a will that would stand in the face of God and stamp my foot and say no. Can you ever think of a time, I'm trying to think of our, of our lives, if time where it would be obedience was really difficult? Well, coming to New Jersey was difficult for me because, because I was uh, seven months pregnant with a high, in a very high-risk pregnancy at almost 50 years of age, and the thought of uh, packing up uh, two children at that time, both Danielle and, and Emily, and Michaela was born then too, so uh, packing them up, moving them here, Emily was still in college, disrupting her education, it just, it was a lot. And I, I remember asking you, you know, are you sure you've prayed? Are you sure that this is where we're supposed to be? New Jersey, are you sure? Yeah, are you sure, New Jersey? And I think that I, I knew, I knew that it was right, and I wasn't resistant, but my flesh was overwhelmed by the circumstances that I was in, and so coming to New Jersey was a little difficult for me. Uh, I think moving to Maryland was a little difficult on another level because um, my family, my home family, my mom and dad, my grandparents who were still living at the time, my brother and sister, we were you know, pretty close as a family and they were pretty distressed even when we moved right. an hour and a half yeah. away from uh, to Cleveland. 
but moving to New Jer uh, to Maryland, I'll never forget pulling out of the driveway and seeing my grandpa, my grandma, my dad, and my mom standing in front of the garage door in the driveway crying <laughs> as we pulled away, taking their only grandchild, great-grandchild with me. And uh, I, I, that's an image that <laughs> I'll never forget that, even though my grandma and grandpa passed and my dad is gone as well. But I, I think it was hard for me just on a just an emotional level. Just yeah. I know this yeah. is going to hurt my sure. mom and that dad. Sense, yeah. Well, the last one is um, ching ching. It's money. And we have done money pretty well. <laughs> we have. Now, uh, not maybe by Dave Ramsey standards, <laughs> because I don't think we've done much wealth building. Not much wealth building. Uh, so I think our retirement is going to be a little slim pickings. But we did finances well and even a kind of a little tie into obedience as we changed the subject when i made the the decision to obey the lord mm -hmm. and leave a very lucrative career right. as a nurse a labor delivery nurse and uh, come into full-time ministry with you and uh that was a a decision that deeply affected us financially and um but i think everything the lord has given us we've held very lightly with our hands right. and we've been willing to give away. Yeah. Bishop Moore from the 1800s said, um, I hold all earthly ties lightly because they are waning for eternity. So we've, we've lived a, a giving life. We've, we, give, we give stuff away all the time. We give to God, we give to people. You can't outgive God. Uh, God loves givers. So I think that's part of the fact that God has taken care of us all our lives because, you know, he, whatever he puts in our, our hands, it's going to go somewhere. <laughs> I remember the very first time, we'd only been married maybe a year, the very first time someone wanted to borrow one of our cars to go like several hours away. It wasn't just like they were not were borrowing it to get groceries. They were borrowing it to take a trip. And you had already told them yes, and you came home and told me and informed me just very matter-of-factly, factly, uh, yes, I gave so-and-so our car to go to Pennsylvania. And I said, what? You did what? That's our car. What if they wreck it? What if they, you know, whatever. And uh, you just said, Sharon, it's not really our car. It's God's car. And that was a, a growing experience for me to learn uh, because I had not experienced that. Not that my parents weren't generous, but we that had just never happened to me before. And so that started me on this wonderful, amazing journey of never feeling like we owned anything that that we would hold if the Lord asked us to give it. Absolutely. Well, we've covered, how many things have we covered so far? Five things. We've covered them all, right? Traumatic stress, family, couples, obedience, and finances. Well, it appears the coffee cup is empty for both of us, and that's our cue to close this broadcast for today. So until we meet again, keep your coffee strong, and your walk with God's stuff.